with the views and comments expressed on the Space Show by its guests, callers, and listeners belong to them. The Space Show and its hosts serve only as a platform and are not responsible for others' comments or views. All topics discussed on the Space Show are primarily for educational purposes. Good afternoon, everybody. Welcome to the Sunday Space Show program, Sunday afternoon in the Pacific Time Coast time zone. I'm your host for the day, David Livingston. It's great to be back uh, with another uh, excellent program, which will be uh, quite fascinating and very interesting. One of our guests has been with us before, Morgan Irons, and Lee Irons is also with us as he is the lead author on the, the paper and the work we're going to discuss in just a minute. Uh, this is a full-length space show program, but still, if you want to talk to either or both of our guests, please watch the time and get a hold of us, not at the very last minute, 11th hour, but so that we'll have time to adequately cover your question or your comment. Our toll-free number for the day is one eight six 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 eight seven seven two two three, and we are using the toll-free number uh, for today's program. You can send email to us at drspace at thespaceshow.com. And then the only other announcement I want to make, uh, other than we're full length today, is that Bob Zubrin is our guest on Tuesday. And um, uh, he's talking about his brand new book uh, that is out, The Case for Nukes. And, of course, tomorrow morning, uh, everybody's going to get up really early to watch Starship, right? Uh, so um, that should be very interesting. And uh, as for uh, the space show, uh, let me just point out again that we are a nonprofit 501c3 listener-supported program, which means that we're able to do these shows because those of you listening uh, also generously support the space show with your financial contributions. And as a 501c3 nonprofit, if you're a federal taxpayer in the United States, you do get a tax deduction for your gift. There is a PayPal button uh, with a link on the upper right side of our homepage, thespaceshow.com. That is by far the easiest way to donate and support the space show. Uh, but we also work with Zelle. And if you do use Zelle, then you know you need an email address. And that email address is david at onegiantleapfoundation.org. And then if you are old school and you want to mail us a check, um, it is made payable to One Giant Leap Foundation, and it mails to our Las Vegas offices, which should be on the PayPal button and are on the homepage. But if you, for some reason, can't find it, please email me at drspace at thespaceshow.com. And so normally on the longer formats, I thank our sponsors, because we do have sponsors, and they keep the show going for sure. You also can be a sponsor. Uh, and uh, on the longer shows, I read their sponsor message. 
they all have banner ads that they can change whenever they want. And um, I just shout out to them on um, today's show because we've got two guests, and I don't want to eat into the time of two guests. So um, our sponsors are Northrop Grumman, the Space Foundation, Astrox, AIAA, Celestis, the National Space Society, and Dr. Heim Benaroya with his two great books. And remember, if you buy his books on lunar development and lunar habitats, through those um, banner ads from Amazon, Amazon donates a portion of your purchase price to the space show. And we're deeply appreciative of that. Uh, so as I said a few minutes ago, Morgan Irons has been on the program before. Her full new bio is on our website, so please do check it out. Uh, she is a soil and crop sciences Ph.D. candidate in the Lehman Lab at Cornell University, where her research focuses on microbial adhesion mechanisms and organic mineral, organic organic interactions in soil aggregates and their effects on soil organic carbon persistence under earth gravity. Um, that's a, a mouthful, excuse me, and I'm sure we'll hear more about her work and I certainly want to hear more about her work uh, when we start getting into this later in the program. Uh, Lee is a scientist and engineer with experience in space, plasma physics, power production, hazardous environment decontamination, environmental rem rem remediation, and large-scale engineering design and construction projects. He's the co-founder and CEO of Deep Space Ecology, and as executive director of the nonprofit Norfolk Institute, he is working on the existential challenges of human sustainability on Earth and in space. And despite of my lousy voice every time I start the space show, I welcome Morgan and Lee to the space show. Lee, we'll start out with you. It's nice to have you on the show and get to know you. And my voice does calm down for some reason later in the show, but... This has been going on ever since I moved to Las Vegas, so I really don't have a handle on it. But uh, we're glad to have you on board. Uh, some of your work and your paper and uh, many articles are on the blog for people to talk about. But introduce us to um, to your work and to your theory. Uh, and I, I've read your paper, and it's very, very technical. So um, we're hoping you can sort of make it easy for the non-scientists to get a better grasp of. Yeah, thank, thanks, David. Uh, thanks for inviting Morgan and I onto your show here. Um, yes, it, it, it is highly technical, and um, we've been working on uh, learning how to explain this highly technical matter uh, to, to people of many different backgrounds. We, we know it's important to have cross-disciplinary work and conversations, especially uh, when it comes to things of a space nature. Um, and and so we've been having those, and, and we've been learning as we go along here for the past couple of months um, uh, how to explain this. So here we'll, we'll have another shot at it on your show, and, and we appreciate you bringing us on. I, I think we can really boil it down. People want to, you know, people want to know, you know, what does this mean for us to go into space? You know, ultimately, that's that's the big question. And I think the most succinct way that we could probably put 
the the insights and conclusions of the research that we did that that is provided in this paper is that we we cannot techno fix our way into long term habitation of space. Techno fix is is a term of art. It's it's been out there uh, for for a decade or so. Um, we have seen, with all the work going on with, with NASA and the new space uh, industry, um, there's, there's a lot of ideas out there for, for technologies that we can use uh, to help us you know, live in space. If, if we look at, uh, at Artemis and, and the plans for um, trying to establish a, a permanent human presence, on the moon, we we see you know lots of technological pieces of that project that are that are forming up, and various agencies around space agencies around the world and, and companies are helping to to develop those things. Um, when when we look at the, the the efforts that have been going on for decades to figure out you know how we would inhabit Mars, there's all kinds of technological recommendations on on how we. And how we would do that, you, know, you, re, you referred to, to Robert Zubin, Zubin coming up uh, in an upcoming interview that you're going to have on your show. He's, he's been a big leader in that, and, and, and all of these ideas are great, and, and many of them incorporate bioregenerative elements into them. And those are things, those are effectively just living components that you are making part of your engineered system to try and get the benefit of their regenerative nature uh, into your engineered system. And so all of these things are called technofixes. It's using technology to try and, and fix things that humans are having a hard time with in our natural world. Um, it especially goes towards the environmental movement on Earth, and we begin to talk about things like echomimetic technology and biomimetic technology, which basically means you're trying to use technology to mimic critical uh, biological uh, functions and, and ecological functions of, of, our, of our ecosystem. Um, and that's kind of like going in the direction of something's failing in our ecosystem, how do we use technology to try to fix it? When we go into space, what we're saying is there's something missing from our ecosystem in space where we're sending humans to be, and so we're trying to replace that missing ecosystem element with some technology. And that's effectively what environmental control and life support systems are doing for astronauts when they go out to space is trying to replace those 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 ecosystem elements of life support that humans naturally get without much effort at all on Earth, uh, other than hunting and gathering, which is our basic primal way that humans evolved and survived. Um, so we're saying that going out into space, we're going to try and use technology to replace those things. And maybe we can bring some life with us incorporated into the engineered system to make that work you know, better. And, and people throw around the word sustainable, right? Right. 
Yeah, that, that, that word is out there, and we've been using it, and, and it's great, and it sounds good. And, uh, you know, the question comes up, what do you mean? What, what does sustainable mean? And you can go out there and you can look at all the engineering papers and the science papers out there, and there's many different ways that people have dis- defined sustainable. Um, there's engineered resilience, which is basically how do you make artificial parts, you know, last longer? What's their what's what's their life cycle? How many cycles of 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 operation can they go through before they fail and you have to replace them? Um, so engineered resilience is kind of the way that conversation started, but now it's also tried to bring in, you know, the environmental science that has been developed here for the past century on Earth and try and bring those concepts into this space engineering. And, and so one of the things that, that, that we threw the flag on, um, in our last paper, Terraform Sustainability Assessment Framework, for bioregenerative life support systems, we threw the flag and we said, hey, it's great that everybody's talking about sustainability, but there's no hard definition for it. There's no quantified way of measuring it. We need a method of quantifying it if it's going to mean anything to us. And so we proposed a method in in that paper. Um, In this paper, we kind of go deeper into this whole idea of, well, what what might you actually need to be sustainable, and then once you figure that out, then what's the actual uh, quantifiable method you would go to use to measure that? And so we go all the way into that, and coming back around to how I started this, what we determined was technology by itself, even with some bio bioregenerative components added to it cannot make a human living in space sustainable. Okay, so we need to absorb that. Um, So obviously you don't give up. So what else has to come along to, to add to that? So, so let's, uh, let's talk about what, we mean by sustainable. So when we when we talk about sustainable, what we're talking about is what humans have on Earth. We we have more or less sustainable living on Earth. Uh, according to the definitions of sustainability, levels of sustainability that, that we've modeled in the paper, and you can find those in the paper, we've modeled four different levels of sustainability. Our current present day living in Earth is mostly level two sustainability. We are struggling with living in concert with our environment without disrupting our environment. Um, and of course there's a lot of debate on that with, with global climate change and, and with, uh, depleted natural resources. Uh, a big problem we have on Earth is that we're, we're running out of our current source of, of of phosphorus for agricultural fertilizer that the, that the United States uses um, uh, from from inside our borders, and we're going to have to depend more and more from from uh, imports from places like Russia. Uh, phosphorus has always been a very difficult problem uh, for for agriculture 
especially since the UK and Europe and, and America um, completely depleted the source of phosphorus that was on a was on an island in, in, in the Caribbean that for a century or more was pulling all of its phos- all of our phosphorus from. Uh, it was basically just centuries of, of accumulated bird guano uh, that, that we were mining and using for our agricultural fertilizer. That source depleted. We went to another one that's in the United States. That source is almost depleted. And, and you can look at things like phosphorus and all kinds of other things and, and see that we're depleting into round. Um, having struggles with it. That's why we say we're effectively in level two sustainability here on Earth because we still haven't figured out how to not overconsume our natural resources. So, so when we go into space, what does it mean to be sustainable in space? We're effectively saying level one sustainability, which is humans living in concert with their natural ecosystem. We're saying that Humans need, humans and their ecosystem need to be able to survive large scale disruptive events that could, that are extinction level. So, you know, we, we look at, we look at Earth and we say 65 million years ago, a large meteor struck Earth. It was an extinction level event. It killed all the large dinosaurs, but it didn't kill Earth. Earth recovered, and there's a lot of science that goes into why Earth recovered, and we actually cover that in, a, in our paper. But but it didn't completely destroy life. And so when we look at when we look at space, a very harsh environment, and we want to send humans to a place in space that doesn't have all the natural protections of Earth, you know, the, the magnetic field to protect us from radiation and the atmosphere to protect us from relatively large meteors that, that burn up, that mostly burn up in the atmosphere um, and, and, and protect us from just asphyxiating because we have this large gravity well that holds this nice atmosphere in tight against our world and gives us a way to, to breathe with all the plants and such. When you go out into space and you say, well, how do you have those same kinds of protections in space? It turns out if you try to provide yourself with those same protections in space, with engineered protections, you could set up an environmental control and life support system that does the job. You could do it with a lot of technology. You could do it with incorporating some biological components in there to kind of give you a a more sustainable more efficient, uh, in terms of energy usage, more efficient, uh, life support system. But we say that it's brittle because if you're using technology to give you critical environmental services, if that technology gets taken out by a single disruptive event, the brittleness of the system means that your entire ecosystem can go into very fast cascade failure, which for the, for the humans in that location could be a localized extinction event. It'd kill off the humans very quickly unless they have a nice, fast, and complete way of emergency egress. 
which again is also very difficult when you get into into deep space. So that's fundamentally what our paper is saying is what can we do to avoid using so much technology that we make our environmental control and life support systems brittle and susceptible to catastrophic failure and and basically the dis- the complete and total destruction of of the of the engineered ecosystem that that we have put into space okay so I have a, a question for you from myself not not yet from any any listeners but um so um the first thing that comes to mind and so um Lee, my background and, and academic ground and background is economics and business. And I like to say everything I've learned about science I learned in the space show, the, to paraphrase a book. But um, I, I, I'm an economics finance kind of guy more than a, a science guy and an engineering guy, although the space show has taught me quite a bit. Um, so I look at what you're saying, and I'm probably optimistic that at some point in human history, we could develop the self-restoring Earth-like uh, ecosystem uh, that humans would need to to really have thriving communities and economies in space. Uh, the question I, I would ask you is, to reach the point where we could do that, um, if, if I said, where are we technologically today to do that, or what, what would our TRL levels be today right. to actually right. have that system? What I'm looking for is a realistic, grounded, in fact, timeline rather than fantasy timelines. And also right. it's the stuff like I'm, we're going to have 10,000 people on Mars by 2030 or whatever it may be. Because I, I think this is all foolish talk and not based on grounded reality. What, what right. kind of TRL are we at that, what kind of timelines do we need, and does science even agree with the two of you? Right. That's, those are those are those are all great questions. Well, one of the one of the main elements, uh, and it, it's actually an element that we that we talk about first in our paper, that's needed to get that sustainable system where you could send a group of you know, a large population of humans out into space, bootstrap this system up. You might need some initial supply chain support from Earth to get the initial bootstrapping going. But the point is to get it to a point where it can be self-sustaining on its own without a supply chain from Earth um, and without having to go too far afield uh, to get its resources, basically localized planetarily, if you will. Um you know, how do you get there? And, and the first thing that we identify that you need and that has evolutionarily developed on Earth uh, and, and therefore supports humans and, and all of Earth life are, are what, what theory calls um, dissipative structures. So let me, let me first qualify this by saying that we use as, as uh, the basis for this new theory, the Pan-Cosmorio theory, 
uh, ecological thermodynamics, which is a science that's been developed over the past hundred years. Um, it was it was started. The thinking process on things like this were started by scientists such as Boltzmann and and Schrodinger, who are both both very well known and very respected in science history. They have they have science that's named after them. Um, so they kind of started this thinking. And then there are some very reputable, very well-known um, scientists in, in, on the environmental side, um, and you can find references to them in our paper uh, that that have have take, picked up this thinking that was effectively started by physicists, and 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 kind of put it more into environmental science language. What does this physics mean for life? Um, and, and have continued the development of this ecological thermodynamic science. We have a recent development of network ecology science, uh, basically in the past 40 years, um, which gets in the, into the networks of, of ecosystems and how they're very much similar to, to informational networks. Uh, so this brings in information science, which, is, which has been developed over about the same amount of time, 100 years. Uh, so, and information theory comes into all of this. So, so there's a big scientific um, uh, basis for for this theory. We we then use abductive reasoning, which is a, a a method. Everybody's heard of deductive reasoning and inductive reasoning. Not too many people people have heard of abductive reasoning, but it's basically saying. Well, if this works this way on Earth, and and life uses this to function on Earth, then if you take life into space, then you can infer that life probably needs the same things in space that it has on Earth to survive. That's that's effectively, in a nutshell, what abductive reasoning is. But you don't end there. You've got to make hypotheses on your theory, and we have five of them in our theory, five hypotheses that need to be falsifiable, you have to be able to do tests to prove them wrong, if indeed they are wrong. And so we identify those tests as well, and we provide a method for quantifying measurements, taking measurements and quantifying so that you can conduct those tests and either prove or disprove those hypotheses. And the the art of and science of of hypothesis making is is inductive reasoning, and then once you do the test and you come up with your results, you use deductive reasoning to say, well, the results are the results. That means these hypotheses are correct. That means they support the theory. And so, deductively, we know that we need to do what the theory says, or or believe what the theory says. So. So that's in a nutshell the science that we go through in all of this stuff and 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 what is and what our theory is supported by. So the the um, so so the the pan cosmorial theory and I'm sorry I might have wandered a bit from your original question. Um, what was the original question again? Well, I, I, how prepared are we? Technically, like, ah. do we have a low TRL and what kind of realistic, grounded, factual timelines before we could be like this in space? 
Right. Yeah, exactly. So we have the science and the pan-cosmorial theory to extend that science from Earth into space. So, so we have that, and we try to summarize that in the pan-cosmorial theory and provide references to where it is, to where it comes from. So the science suggests that we're probably no better than TRL2 in actually being able to get a sustainable, a truly sustainable, what we would define as a level one sustainable uh, human settlement in space. Um, and again, that fundamentally comes down to the fact that technology we have not been able to, nor are we even close to figuring out how to design technology that is truly self-restoring. And by self-restoring, we, we take that technology, which is basically, if you say it's going to act in an ecosystem, it's kind of like a species. So you can take a piece of technology and you call it a species. And you say, we have this species, and we have a whole bunch of other species working together in this engineered ecosystem. And if you have a, a, a disruptive event hit it that could cause extinctions of species, so a disruptive event that takes out this tech, some of this technology, doesn't have to take out all of it, would that technological system as a whole be able to reorganize on its own with the inputs, with just solar power inputs and, and the gravity available and the resources immediately available to it without human intervention, would it be able to reorganize and evolve itself into something new before it completely dies off. And we are, we do not have technology that can do that, nor do we even know really where to begin with developing that technology. There's been some ideas out there on, on self-restoring and self-replicating technology, but it still fundamentally is not at the point where as as an entire eco as an entire technological ecosystem, we call that an augmentation system. Can it evolve into something new that continues to survive and thrive if a disruptive event comes in and causes some or or much of the technology to go extinct, to stop working and to not be restored and replaced with something else? So you, you have an, an email from Joan in Tulsa, Oklahoma, and Joan says, well, since this is likely going to take decades, if not longer, do we not go into space until we're able to do this, or do we continue going into space with improvements in the way we're doing it now, though clearly not approaching what you're talking about? What would you suggest? So I would suggest, um, and, and we kind of get into this a little bit in the conclusion in the paper, is that 
like the best that we can get near term is what would be called a balanced sustainability approach within cislunar space. Um, the reason why doing it in cislunar space is important is because it's close to Earth, and if things go very, very bad, the humans can escape as long as there's means provided of escape. Nobody wants to be on the ship that, unfortunately, doesn't have enough life rafts, right? Absolutely <laughs> so, right. So as long as there's enough resources for emergency egress and quickly getting back to Earth, um, cislunar space kind of affords us that that capability. The International Space Station is a good example of it. International Space Station is, is what would be classified by by our pan-cosmorial theory as a level four sustainability system. It is sustained by supply chain from Earth. So the reason why it can be sustained is because it is he- it is wholly dependent upon the natural ecosystem of Earth to continue to function. That that we call that the basal ecosystem. The the ecosystem that is fully natural, fully self-restoring, fully evolutionarily capable of 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 adapting and redesigning itself. Um it's it's supported by that from Earth. And of course the huge augmentational system that we have on Earth to support it, made up of all the space agencies, the space industrial complex that supports them, and all the suppliers and sub-suppliers of that space industrial complex that support them for for market changes, for for parts obsolescence, uh, for uh, supply chain disruptions, uh, for for employment shortages when we can't find enough engineers. <laughs> To do the work anymore uh, because there aren't enough people going into engineering or into science. Um, that 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 societal system leverages the natural ecosystem of Earth to create itself, to create the societal system. Humans create their societal system on Earth, utilizing and heavily, wholly dependent on the natural ecosystem of Earth to then provide these supply chains up to the International Space Station and sustain it in low Earth orbit. Even with that, there have been times when the supply chain from Earth to the International Space Station has been disrupted with humans left in space, which is which then, according to the way we would quantify sustainability, would be an event that suggests, as we've identified, that proves that the International Space Station is a level four sustainability system. You have, you have a drop off of supply, so your, so your, your production from your ecosystem drops off, which causes your local production on the International Space Station to, to come at risk. And to begin to become depleted, you have a buildup of waste on the space station that isn't being taken down, um, and and the humans, the human life on that space station, becomes at greater risk 
when you get into situations where that supply chain gets disrupted like that, it happened during COVID. It happened when we when we shut down the shuttle program. Um, and so we've, we've already kind of proven out the, the level four sustainability analytical model of, of the pan-cosmorial theory uh, that, that, that we have. So, it, you know, just that right there shows that it's difficult, even close to Earth, to build a sustainable system. But if we were to try to do it in cislunar space, the, the first thing that we need to be able to do is to generate artificial gravity. Now, artificial gravity, by its name, is technological. It's technologically generated gravity. You can do it by building a cylinder and setting it to spinning, right? Everybody's heard, or a lot of people have heard of the O'Neill cylinders. And that is artificially generated gravity. Um, and it is the most energy inefficient way of getting gravity. Uh, of course, the most energy efficient way of getting gravity is finding a gravity well. That already exists, right? Mm-hmm. Our planet and, and Mars has a gravity well and such. But it turns out that you need one G of gravity like we have on Earth to sustain life because life evolved over billions of years in that context and our ecosystem networks and the energy flows that start with the sun pouring down on them, the energy flows that go through our ecosystem networks and make that ecosystem function to give us breathable oxygen and food to eat and water to drink and the right temperatures and and including the radiation protection uh, that we have. Um, life and human life especially, because that's what we're mostly concerned with here, is highly attuned to 1G of gravity, according to ecological thermodynamics. So you have to find a way of providing that 1G of pulling force on humans and on the Earth life that that humans take with them to get it to function properly. We've seen this with the science coming out of the International Space Station, how human bodies dysfunction how plants dysfunction in what what we call in the vernacular microgravity. I prefer to call it as a physicist. I prefer to call it free fall, um, where where there's no weight, where you do not experience weight. The, the life begins to dysfunction. Now, you look at that and you can say, well, no, it's functioning a little bit. Okay, yeah, it's functioning a little bit. But if you're going to try and put that in an ecosystem with it functioning just a little bit, the ecosystem is not going to act the same way. The energy isn't going to flow the same way. And and trying to establish something that's already been evolutionarily proven to work on Earth, an ecosystem, and trying to, to set up that same ecosystem in space, because it's evolutionarily proven, so let's do the same thing, it's not going to act the same way. It's not going to function the same way. Uh, very complicated, uh, multivariable problem. Um, and, and so, but we could set up 1G of artificial gravity to, to mimic that same thing, 
with an O'Neill cylinder. And then our paper says to do that, you'd have to have bootstrapping from Earth. You need a huge, very well-established, very solid supply chain from Earth to your location in cislunar space to build this rotating station and to get all of these natural resources on it in order to set up and and ecologically bootstrap across the entire section of energy flow through the station a naturally functioning ecosystem. If you can get to that point, then you and then go the next step, which says to be a complete functioning environmental ecosystem that's functioning the same way it functions on Earth, you need that 1G of gravity, which we've established with this artificial spin. You need the same level of solar insulation, solar power pouring onto the ground within that rotating station as you have pouring onto Earth. So that same level of power input into your natural ecosystem. You need an amount of area that human and human systems have have evolved and adapted to with their society, and we call that out what that is in the paper, and we can have more conversations on that if if you wish. Um, and then and then you need what's called the network vitality and the functional diversity of the ecosystem functioning properly on that entire cross-section of space station. And, and that's effectively getting the ecosystem properly set up. That would require a lot of management to get it to the point where it becomes self-restoring, and we have a lot of knowledge building that we still need to go into there, and, and Morgan can probably talk to more of that um, be, before, we, before we can actually get to be able to do that. Once you do that, you know that you have enough if, that natural ecosystem has enough resources in it and enough capacity moving through it to provide all the services that the human society needs to build all of its technology on location and to repair and maintain all of its technology on location, manufacturing and everything, including the technology that produces the spin of the station. The actual outer shell and, and motor system and power system driving the spin of that station. If you get to that point, you're in a circular economy. So David, that's, that's the business side that you like. If you get to that point, you've gotten yourself into a circular economy where it can be self-sustaining locally. And now you've, you've basically bootstrapped your way into a level one sustainable system that has everything that, that you would have on Earth in order to be self-restoring, but it's done so on the basis of, of the middle of your energy flow rather than the beginning of your energy flow. So on Earth, the beginning of the energy flow, the solar power comes in on this gravity well of 1G, and the gravity helps drive these dissipative structures, these cycles of, of material that are the basis of life, 
and and that's the start of your sustainable system. And in an in an O'Neill cylinder, that start of the of 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 your system is very technologically uh, provided. It's provided with the spin of the station, and it's provided with some high with a bunch of LED lights that captures sunlight from solar panels and and redirects it so that it can shine directly on the land that you have within your O'Neill cylinder. That's a lot of technology. You have a caller who who wants to uh, talk to you, and I, I would imagine you'll get a lot of questions about, well, Excellent. what about the gravity prescription and, and two-thirds gravity or one-sixth gravity or partial gravity? But let's take your caller first, okay? Yeah, excellent. Um, hi, caller. Welcome to the program. Who are you? Where are you, please? Hey, David. It's John in Fremont, California. Hi, John. Uh, speaking of the gravity prescription, um, if I heard you correctly, um, humans cannot survive without 1G. Is that correct? The, the science of ecological thermodynamics and of non-equilibrium thermodynamics uh, and of network ecology and all the information theory that backs it suggests that it would be um, risky to attempt to get humans to survive in you know and what we may what we mean is surviving being able to procreate over multiple generations locally right that's true sustainability because that's what we have on earth so the ability to get to that point the ability to do that would be highly, highly risky without 1G, and that's because you would be putting humans and the life that they bring with them into forced evolution. You would be forcing them to adapt and evolve over a relatively short time frame to this new environment that they did not evolve within. So the point is, can life do that? And I think the answer that you can say is, sure, it might be able to do that because that's what's unique about life is that it can evolve, right? Unlike technology, life can evolve. But you've put this life into a situation where it's surrounded by a very extreme and hostile environment, and you're sustaining it with technology that is replacing critical environmental services. So you're replacing a atmosphere that's held in a gravity well against a lithosphere and gives the right atmospheric pressure and the right temperature and all those protections that it gives us. And you're sticking it under a dome, and so you're basically echo-mimetically mimicking, you're ecologically mimicking the atmosphere of Earth with a dome. And you're, you're mimicking the 1G of gravity with a rotating, with some kind of rotation, with a, with a centrifugal force that is provided that, that, that provides an apparent feel of 1G of gravity. And, and now you're trusting 
that it's not going to get taken out by something disruptive. So let's say, okay, let's let's not worry about generating 1G of artificial. We're just going to stick them in one-third of gravity on Mars. So now you have to depend upon the biology and the environments, the, the ecological system, the network's ability to adapt and evolve into a uniquely Martian ecological system in a very short period of time before those species die from the effort because of their dysfunction. So uh, can they can they adapt? Certainly, living things can adapt faster than, than they can evolve. The big question is, can they evolve fast? That's a very open, highly questionable uh, thing for life to be able to evolve quickly, say, within a single generation, to be able to evolve that fast, maybe within two generations, to be able to evolve that fast before dying off. So you're forcing humans in life to adapt and evolve quickly in an alien environment that doesn't have all the natural stuff they're used to. And so we have to look at that, and we have to say from a quantitative measurement, from a risk analysis perspective, we have to say that that is no better than level three sustainability as we define it in our paper. And in fact, it is actually, it isn't even level four sustainability because it's so far from the earth. It's not measurable on our scale of sustainability that we have just because it puts humans and life into this need to have expedited very fast two generation at most evolution to be able to evolve into something that's uniquely Martian and able to survive with a new configuration, a new energy flow, a new network, a new food chain in, in, a, in a uniquely Martian environment. So can it do it? Theoretically possible, but it's very high risk. It's likely to have lots of failed attempts in the process of trying to get there and figure it out. And, and we say we need to have lots of analog testing with providing humans for fail-safe tests, providing humans with fail-safe tests that don't kill humans in the process in order to get there to really figure it out. So by today's measures of technology and environmental science and, and our understanding of how evolution works, we cannot call that sustainable. Okay, hold it there because I want to get more discussion. Uh, John, you're, I know you're an advocate of figuring out the gravity prescription and O'Neill structure, but this throws cold water on even taking the time and spending the money to figure out the gravity prescription. I agree, and um, I, I, I think this makes uh, the case for O'Neill colonies um, <clears throat> uh, more um, in in line with what we should focus on. But, you know, I mean, if, if we can establish outposts on the moon and Mars, fine. They're not going to be sustainable, though, especially from a human reproductive um, perspective. I heard you, I heard you say, Lee, that the um, uh, spinning uh, an O'Neill colony is not 
uh, an energy efficient solution. What what did you mean by that? And and once you get it spinning, is it going isn't it going to stay spinning? <laughs> right, right, certainly. So um, it's not it's not energy efficient when you compare it to how nature functions. So the way dissipative structures, which are fundamentally from an engineering perspective, they're they're heat pumps. They're they're heat cycles. Um, dissipative the way natural dissipative structures work is they use what what physics calls conservative forces. So for everybody else, that means they use gravity and they use electricity to drive this pumping action. So everybody has an air conditioner in their house, or most people do, uh, many people do nowadays. An air conditioner is, is, is a heat pump. It, 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 has, it has a place that, that it has a system in it that, that does work in order to move heat from your house to remove heat from your house and put it out into a already hotter environment to make your house cooler. So it does that useful work for you, but it does that by having a pump in it that moves the cooling medium around in a cycle, and then it has a heat source and it has a heat sink. It has a place where it pulls heat from and it has a place where it puts heat out into. And that cycle is a heat engine and that does useful work for humans. It is, it is more inefficient than nature can do that kind of, uh, that can do, uh, heat movement because all of those technological things in there are, are what we call, they're non-conservative. They're basically friction-driven forces that make the whole thing work. And because they're friction-driven, it means they're less efficient because you lose a lot of energy to friction. In a natural ecosystem, the things that drive the natural cycles of the ecosystem are gravity and and the electric and the electric the electrical force of chemistry. And those and for natural for for bio for for geophysical and biogeochemical and biochemical cycles that happen with our water cycle and our oxygen cycle and our carbon cycle, the weather patterns and and the way our soil works and the way life works with with functioning and with uh, going through the, the these cycles of life and generations being born and old generations dying, the way all this works is a lot more efficient. Gravity itself and the gravity well, and therefore the cycle that drives, is a lot more efficient than artificial gravity created by a, a system that is technology. It's a, it's a cylinder that you build and you have a motor driving it, all of those, all of that technology is fundamentally friction driven and therefore is inherently less efficient. So it doesn't mean that you can't do it. It just means that it's going to require more energy to make it happen than you would get from a natural ecosystem. But. Well, I'm not concerned about that because yeah. we'll, we'll have plenty of power in space. Sure. Um, exactly. So, especially if you're, especially if you're close to Earth. Lots of power. You can set up Lots of solar panels and, 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 and you're pretty good. The, the concern with the cylinder 
I, I think it's probably the best way to go initially. I would agree with you. But the concern is that if you have, like, a meteor strike into your motor system that drives that spin or into the side of your colony that penetrates the, 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 the enclosed airspace of the colony, it can drive that colony, even if you have a fully functioning natural ecosystem functioning inside that colony, it can drive that colony into very fast cascade failure because you've taken out the artificial gravity, gravity with a single stroke, a single disruptive event. And the ability of your technological system and your humans on board to recover from such a major hit is questionable. It, it, you know, if it's like a pinhole strike, okay, you can most likely recover from that. You can set up plans to how you would recover from that and, and get yourself into a more of a fail-safe configuration, right? But, but there, there are scenarios that, that you're not going to be able to recover from. But the point is, you, you hit Earth with a meteor, you're not going to take out gravity. It just isn't going to happen. And you're not going to take out most of the dissipative structures on the geophysical scale that are functioning around the Earth, even with nuclear winter, even with all this dust thrown into the space and blocking a lot of the sunlight. You're not going to take out the ecosystem. You're not going to take out gravity. And that's because Earth is a big battery that's been charging for billions of years, and it has a lot of stored what we call exergy, which is basically environmentally stored energy. It has a lot of exergy in this battery that life can use to adapt and evolve to the new conditions provided to it into something new over millions of years, like it did when it was struck by that meteor 65 million years ago. Everybody has maybe heard about the new movie, 65, that's coming out. That, that has come out that's, that talks about that, kind of gives a fictional story around it. But um, that's, that's fundamentally the big challenge for providing artificial gravity with, with an O'Neill cylinder. All right. Well, shields up. <laughs> exactly. Shields up. Um, okay, uh, David, I'll let someone else call in. Okay. So, uh, thank you. Okay. Uh, listeners, you two can give us a call, 866 866- Six eight seven seven two two three, and email of course remains Doctor Space at the Space Show dot com. Uh, Morgan, I have a question for you. Are you there? I am here. Uh, so this is uh, Paul, and uh, uh, Paul is in Portland, and he says uh, the last time you were on the show, you were at a space advocacy space settlement conference in Seattle. And people mm-hmm. met you there and suggested that you come on the space show. And you were talking about agriculture, food, and other kinds of opportunities that might exist someday in space. Uh, none of this has been mentioned so far. The food supply has not been mentioned in level two, level one, level four, anything. That's going to require an enormous amount of energy. Um, in the bio that David read, he, he said that you were a soil and crop scientist working on your on your PhD 
What does it take to have even level two or level one food production in space? Plus, you met a lot of space entrepreneurs and advocates and people, and you know that their hearts are set on going to Mars or maybe to live on the moon. And how would Mm -hmm. they react to deploying their resources to what you're talking about? Because they're spending money and raising money uh, for settlement on Mars or the moon or something a little bit different. Would they deploy their resources differently to help accomplish what your father and you are talking about? Great question. And it's something that is, I actively work on, and I was also an expert judge for NASA's Deep Space Food Challenge, so I got to see a lot of United States-based and international teams uh, propose their ideas for food systems in space from the plant-based systems to the um, alternative forms like cellular meat growth, crickets, things like that. How would you even use an oven in space (laughs) or a blender? Things like that. Um, So I've definitely been seeing where the thought process and the technology development uh, is going in this space. And something that I would remind people of, and this pretty much goes into a lot of what Lee has said as well, that where does the majority of our food come from here on Earth that we actively use in our daily lives? Well, if we look at a United United Nations statistic, 95% of our food comes from soil-based systems from the soil, uh, with very little coming from hydroponics-based systems and those engineered kinds of systems. Yes, the agricultural systems, there's a variety, a lot of intensive agricultural commercial systems, but as we see here on Earth, that reliance that we've had on this very intensive agriculture, which a lot of this knowledge is based in colonialistic thinking as well, is leading to things like soil degradation, which is very concerning for when we're thinking about food security and making sure that people have access to food locally, especially if we have these major disruptive events like we have been seeing over the last few years and even in past years with extreme weather events, pandemic disruptions to supply chains. And even on the local scale, you can have disruptions. For example, the the cold snap freeze that happened in Texas a few years ago in 2020, I believe. Even having a farm down the road they didn't have to get that food down the highway to the local townships. So the local townships were experiencing food insecurity, even with food a couple miles away. So we look at that and we look at our reliance of soil here on Earth, and it begs the question of could we have an agricultural system in space that is technology-based, technology-driven, such as a hydroponic system, 
aquaponics, uh, whatever system people are proposing, because there are a lot out there. Uh, and I would be very hesitant to say that we could sustain ourselves on technology-based agricultural systems based off of what everything that Lee has said, as well as looking at our systems here on Earth. When we look at where hydroponics-based systems are right now, a lot of them are based in highly augmented systems. And Lee mentioned this augmented systems is pretty much our technology society that humans have developed. So having uh, vertical farming, hydroponics-based systems in cities where you have access to uh, your electrical network, your water supply, things like that. If you try to build such a system in the middle of a desert, not near any water supply, not near any electrical system, then you can start to have problems there with your sustainability. And we even see this on the management side of the systems if we go into the systems and actually look at, for example, hydroponics. These systems can be very manager knowledge-based, where you have a very specific nutrient solution, a very specific set of parameters that need to be followed for your system to function without disruption. And yet we still see these disruptive events such as a microbial bloom that happens in a hydroponic system. And when that happens, you have to clear out the system, sterilize it, and you have that downtime. So during that downtime, if you have an event like that happen, where are you getting your food in that time, especially since if you're growing from seed, now you could be set back by a few months of grow time. So the way I like to think about hydroponic systems versus a soil-based system, a soil-based system, at least here on Earth, has a microbiome in it. It has trillions of microorganisms, many, many of which we haven't identified because it's so challenging um, with how much diversity there is in there, as well as all the soil fauna, things like that, that are creating the system that can combat against disturbances, uh, bio vectors, things like that. While with a hydroponic system, you don't have that microbiome in place. It's pretty much, you could say it's the difference between a human who has a beautiful functioning immune system and then a human who has a completely, um, um, a bubble boy. A com- yeah, pretty much, yeah, a compromised immune system, yes. Compromised immune system uh, disrupted extremely easily. Uh, so we have to look at all these different elements of uh, disruptions to the systems, how stable it is, how resilient is it, how can it can it be consistent over time, can it persist? Over time, and we actually go a lot into that particular, those particular elements in our Terraform Sustainability Assessment Framework, where we do a, a job of describing the importance of having a soil-based system. Because even when we think about the technology that we have, the the minerals that we use that comes from mining, 
in our geological substrate, mining our soils, mining into our terrestrial system. So we rely a lot on our soil systems, and our soil systems are also part of our larger dissipative structures, as we said, our water cycle, our carbon cycle, our oxygen cycle. The soil is where water, um, gas, and matter, uh, solid matter, meat, like organic matter, things like that. And so it's a very complex system that provides this ability to support a biodiversity of life. So what I believe when we think about long-term sustainability of systems out in space, we, I believe, and based on the science of what I've been working on, I believe it's very mission critical for us to be able to utilize the in-situ resource of the geological substrate in an area. It's going to be very difficult, though, because when we think about Mars, uh, it has perchlorates, it has a very, uh, what is it? Um, sorry, my mind is currently blinking, but it's very difficult. We see this with Mars regular simulant studies. Uh, there was this one paper that came out in, I believe, 2021. Uh, I'm blanking on the author right now, but they pretty much did a study looking at the different Mars regolith simulants that are available on the market and how they would do with germinating certain plants. And the Mars global simulant is currently the closest chemically to what we would find on Mars, and they saw no germination in it, while the other Mars regolith simulants had germination in them. So even the Mars regolith simulant you use becomes critical to better understand how we would use these soil systems on other planets. But ultimately, just based off of our reliance of soil here on Earth, I believe our agricultural systems in space need to have a main soil component, field-based systems. They need to be uh, approached in bioregenerative ways uh, using bio-nutrient circular economy ideas, agroecology. We can't continue to do this intensive commercialized agriculture like we have here on Earth because, as we've seen, it leads to degradation of the system, which is why in the agricultural uh, industry we see this movement towards more biogenerative techniques much of which are based on indigenous practices that have been developed over hundreds, thousands of years by people living on these on this land. And so as we advance the science, we need to also look back at our history, how humans have developed their agricultural systems to be sustainable over hundreds of years and respectfully bring that forward invite those people and those voices to the table because they have the hands-on need to make this more sustainable. What do you think the willingness will be of um, people with resources to deploy those resources toward um, uh, theories and and work that uh, Lee and you are working on uh, rather than we're going to go build – settlements on Mars, and, and for example, Dr. Kathari sent in an email for the two of you, I don't understand, 
before having multi-generational presence on, say, Mars, we will have received many data points about the effect of 0.4G over a shorter period, maybe a few months a year, maybe even get pregnant and give birth on Earth, and on and on. Extrapolate to multi-generational sustainable argument is unwise for now and probably for many years or a few decades to come. So mm-hmm. so are, do you think that resources will be deployed to this line of, of research, or will we uh, continue trying to uh, develop Mars colonies, as an example? Hmm. So I'm trying to make sure I understood the question <laughs> being asked perhaps, here. Perhaps I could say something. Uh, uh, Lee, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Go ahead, Lee. I'll think about my answer a bit. The So uh, I agree that, you know, the results of our research shouldn't be taken as an all-stop. Um, Agreed. You know, this, the theory suggests that it's highly risky, um, that if if humans do end up surviving, being able to survive in something less than 1G, um, they're not going to look the same as the humans on Earth. And by definition, what we're saying is, by definition, if human life on another planet does not look at the same as it looks on Earth, it's not sustainable because... The only comparison that we have for human life is Earth. And so you have to, to, to have any measure of how you're doing in any engineering field or any science field, you, you have to have a, a basis comparison. And, and we're saying that because of the way evolution works, because of the way ecological thermodynamics works and non-equilibrium thermodynamics, because of the way information theory works, for all those reasons, it is highly unlikely in less than 1G, human life and human society would look the same. And therefore, in comparison to the Earth, it would not sustain an Earth-like condition. So, if we're, if we're okay with humans being different evolved species on another planet from and and if evolution can happen quickly to make that happen and if we're okay with that okay great great but but that is the likelihood of what the science tells us does it mean all stop it doesn't mean all stop you can certainly establish a base in these outer regions where you're rotating humans back to earth so that maybe you don't get the long-term consequences of the low 1G, and that you're providing a highly technological system set up that has as many protections as you possibly can afford and set up in order to prevent cascade failures and, and large loss of life from, from highly disruptive events. Um, but we just need to go into this with our eyes wide open. Mm-hmm. And... Um, I think there is some concern that we're throwing a lot of money at an at a one-off attempt, and and everybody thinks. I mean, we've we've been in this 
we've been in this too. We've been very excited about this, about what Elon Musk is doing and, and the things that Robert Zubrin has written about. And we're, you know, we're, this is exciting and it's, it's great, it's great to see it. But we should, we should have no illusions about this being like the science fiction that we have read. It, 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 it would be, it would be closer to, um, there's some science fiction that it's a little bit closer to what we think reality is going to be than, than other science fiction. Let's just put it that way. So, so sustainability, it's got to look like Earth or it's not sustainable. That's, that's fundamentally that. The, the other thing on the food, you have hydroponics, you have aquaponics, aeroponics, you even have a soil system. Uh, on Mars. Agricultural systems are fundamentally augmentational. They're not natural. They are heavily managed and organized and engineered by humans. So to avoid what Morgan said, the industry standard is if your hydroponic system line one goes into a heavy algae bloom, you drop line one to repair it and you function on line two, your redundant backup. You might even have a third redundant backup, triple redundancy, you know, to make sure that you're always going to have food. That's, in a natural ecosystem, that's what we would call the ascendant part of the ecosystem. It's where a plurality of your energy through flow is, is being routed for, for, for food production, okay? But you're not truly sustainable unless you also have a reserve. And the reserve is the 60% of energy through flow that will provide you food if both your main and your redundant systems go down at the same time. That's what nature provides and what makes nature sustainable. And the vast majority of current plans for that, that we have seen for sending humans into space do the typical engineered approach of main and main lines and redundant lines, main systems and redundant systems, but they don't have reserve because reserve by definition is extra and it's expensive and the additional expense risks canceling the project. So we have to cut the reserve out. This is why you have losing airline travel for a day because the NOTAM mainline and the NOTAM backup system both went down at the same time, so pilots didn't have a way to get their information, and all flights were frozen. It's because there was no reserve system to provide pilots with an alternative method of getting the information that they needed to fly if both the main and backup NOTAM systems went down. So, I mean, we've seen plenty of examples of this happen on Earth, and, and having a ecosystem reserve is fundamental network ecology knowledge and science. And that's the thing that a lot of these current plans are missing. I'm not going to say all of them because I haven't seen every little thing that everybody's done. Obviously, nobody has seen the details of what Musk is planning unless they're actually, you know, inside SpaceX working on it. Or but, maybe inside but, his head. So. Um, yeah, we've got to have the reserve. Here's, a, here's another uh, question from you uh, for either one of you. 
Benny is in Phoenix, Arizona. And he says, uh, there have been many space show programs with very well-known and globally respected geneticists who claim that they are working on or will be working on or have done work on human genome modification for space. How does anything like this factor in or does it factor in to what you're talking about? Morgan, would you like to try that question? I feel like you have an answer to this because we've definitely <laughs> talked about this, and I know you have your thoughts. Right, yeah. I, I, I don't want to dominate the conversation. But, you know, there are these are really top scientists that I've interviewed and talked about. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is not just Looney Tunes space advocates talking oh, about this. No. this you know, there's top mm-hmm. people trying to change our genes. Oh, right, mm-hmm. right. And, 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 and it's very interesting. And it's got a lot of promise, especially for curing diseases on Earth, which is fantastic. Right. I'm fully supportive of the research, and, and I trust yep. that the scientific rigor and the peer review process and the scientific method is, is all establishing solid science on that part. I don't question that at all. So, um, you know, if, if you took if if you took water bear um, genes. Uh, from the from the particular water bear subspecies that actually has a shield around its DNA structure that shields it from radiation, protects it from high radiation. And you give that to humans, wow, fantastic! Wouldn't that be Wouldn't that be great? The the concern, the question comes down to how does that altered biological component now function? in a multivariable, highly complex ecosystem of which humans are a part. And we don't know. That's, that's it. We, we know that evolution happens or are confident in the science that evolution happens slowly enough for the natural ecosystem to network to also evolve as the biological components evolve such that natural selection and competition between dissipative structures, these biological heat pumps, life forms that are walking around, and the movement of energy through the ecosystem with with producers and consumers we know that evolution happens slow enough so that the ecological system can also evolve just like a living thing. And, and through competition, the heat pumps, the heat engines, the living things that are the most efficient with energy use tend to win the competition. And the ecosystem configuration that most efficiently uses energy tends to win the competition. That's how evolution works in ecosystems. If you take a living thing and you immediately alter its DNA and then put it into the natural ecosystem to multiply naturally and to compete, to, to take over area, land area and resources to, to, to multiply itself, can the ecosystem respond, network, respond just as quickly to that step change 
of modification of a biological component, and we don't know. So it's, again, it becomes highly risky. And then also, once again, it doesn't look like what Earth looks like today. So by definition, because it doesn't look the same, it's not sustainable by Earth definition, which is fundamentally what we say when we say terraforming. We're trying to make something look like Earth. Right. And, and, it's, and humans aren't familiar with it. So if their ecosystem suddenly starts changing, if the way their bodies act suddenly starts changing because of this modification, and we don't have the knowledge on how to respond to the change because we're not familiar with it, we're going to struggle. We're going to have a difficulty managing it and, and augmenting on top of it. And our augmentational systems, our technologies will start failing. I mean, you change somebody's genome. Now what's a doctor supposed to do and understand if something random in your body starts dysfunctioning? Is that a cause of the genetic change? Or is that something else? We don't know. So that's, a, that's an example where our augmentational medical system, though the genetic change might be good, it might cause other things in the body that our medical system doesn't know how to deal with. I know, I know the researchers that are doing this are aware of that problem, and they're being very careful to not deploy, like, some kind of genetic therapy to cure a disease that doesn't kill the individual at the same time it cures their disease and kills the individual, right? Don't right, want right. to do that. But that's short-term. Long-term consequences, long-term results, those are harder to pull out. And then fundamentally, you do that to every single living thing that you send to Mars to modify it, to function in lower gravity and lower atmospheric pressure, lower oxygen availability, whatever you want to modify it to do, higher radiation levels. Individually, each one of those things might work fine. You put them together in a network. The only way you know to network them is the way you've networked them on Earth. Will the network act the same? with them all modified, you don't know. So you have to put it there. Even if you modified it to function on Mars, you have to put it there and hope that it will all figure out how to work together in an ecosystem network that is sustainable according to a Mars model, which is new because it's not an Earth model. And so you're starting off with something completely new and completely different with no promises with no billions of years of testing to back it up. I think there's a caller on hold. No, I guess they gave up on us. Um, caller, if you want to call back, please do so, 866-687-7223. I've got several more emails that have come in, and this one is Sheila in Chicago. And she said, I paid very close attention to the first part of the show with Lee was talking uh, but I'm also very familiar with John's argument about the gravity prescription and O'Neill structure. And I think there's an assumption that is a really risky assumption in all of that. So, Lee and Morgan, I'd like you to comment on this. The assumption is that if you are in space, 
whether free space or on a planet or who knows where, but you're in space and you're at 1G, you can live life as an Earth-based human. You can procreate, you can raise children, you can do everything because you have 1G. But 1G isn't the only thing that has enabled humans to flourish. Uh, we go outside, we get energy from the sun. Who's going outside in space? We're going to simulate vitamin D. We're going to simulate so much other stuff in a controlled environmental system, even if it's sustainable. Why is the assumption that 1G is all we need to have perfect living conditions for humans in space, including bringing up new humans and having young ones? So we're not so gravity was a main element of this paper and really this paper is about really where do we need to start ecolo like the ecological dynamics, where do we need to start with this, what are the fundamental questions? But there's also like was said in this email, the psychology the the interactions that people have with going outside, being able to run outside with wind, to see green, being able to see an environment change over time with the changing of seasons. There's definitely a lot of psychology, emotional, mental support that we get from our ecological systems, which is, I believe, another reason why we need to better understand how ecological systems form over time. And this goes into some ecological theories of uh, ecological succession, soil formation, things like that. We need to understand how ecosystems form over time so that we can be able to pretty much manage, lead along, create an ecological system that can then be used not only for food because there's such a focus on food, but there's so many ecological services, which is an actual um, a f actual phrase um, in environmental science, ecological services being supporting services, regulating services, provisional services, cultural services. Um, there's so many different services that we get from our environment that's not just food. So the paper is very much a physics paper, <laughs> and it's there to really show the fundamentals of what what everything is based on, our ecology, how what where our evolution is based on, but we need to go beyond that as well to the way that we go through our daily lives interacting with our environments. What other parts of our society interactions do we have that could potentially affect us if it becomes missing or lost? in our system when we go out to space. Lee, do you have any comments about her idea that the assumption on 1G may be wrong? Yeah, so so as Morgan was saying, the ecosystem services are, are extremely important. And, and in the paper, we get into, so ecosystem services was was defined by environmental scientists to figure out a way to explain to to the non-scientists in the world, the way environmental systems work. And it gives a way for environmental managers and politicians and such to, to look at their economies and their ecosystems and their countries 
and, and figure out how they're working. So in our paper, we get down into the more science, of, down more into the science of where those ecosystem services come from. And, and we identify more criteria than the 1G dissipative structures. Obviously, we identify that you have to have the living things in a functioning ecosystem network because they are all, they are all dissipative structures that move energy through the ecosystem and cause it to build up stored energy that humans utilize on a daily basis, whether we know we're doing it or not. And we get down to the details of network ecology on what does a sustainable ecosystem look like, and we talk about things like window of vitality, and we talk about things like capacity and ascendancy and reserve. These are all highly technical terms that get at what Morgan is calling ecosystem services. This is where your ecosystem services come from. And and there's critical, balanced, sustainable, non-brittle, so they're, they're robust and they're reliable, ways of, of that ecosystems configure themselves to be robust and reliable that we define in the theory. And as, as defined in the theory, they become objectives on how you would want to set up such a system at a location in deep space, starting with the 1G of gravity that, that underpins the entire function of all the energy movement and, and how all those life forms work. So it's more than just the 1G, definitely. Um, John, who uh, called a little while ago and uh, said in response to the AJ question of a little while ago, I've talked to other space settlement advocates who believe it would be unethical to allow pregnancies in less than 1G until mammalian studies are performed in lower gravity to determine the gravity prescription for reproduction. Uh, do either of you uh, have anything to say about reproduction experiments for uh, settlement on a, on a planetary surface with, well, with partial mm-hmm. gravity? Yeah, well, I would say let's look at our pregnancy situations here on Earth, especially in the United States. We have pretty, um, we have some pretty interesting statistics on mother mortality during birth, child mortality during birth, especially how um, people are treated in the medical system as well, um, and how that affects mortality of mothers and children. Uh, So I don't know too much about how this study would be placed, but I would hope that there would be innovation in the space to prioritize um, the the health and well-being of of the mother and the consequences of of the child as well since um, since our systems at least in the United States definitely need improvement well I, I think it'd be pretty hard to to run test to, to see what would happen. Maybe they can do it and then extrapolate off of rodents. But uh, mm-hmm. I, I suspect if settlement really starts, uh, people will do what they want to do and damn the torpedoes. So <laughs> there yeah, might, be a, lot, might mm-hmm. be a lot of on-the-job information. Uh, AJ sent in another real quick note. 
Uh, we have another data point from the ISS at zero G. I don't know that a severe lack of G would make anyone unable to multiply afterwards or not. I am sure it exists. My guess is it has been possible to multiply or news would have come out that they could not multiply. Evolution probably to much taller humans, for example, would take many generations and happen incrementally. I'm sure earthlings and those others will live together barring other warlike considerations. We have we already have height and size dichotomy on Earth, pygmies and Vikings. So, um, right, right, and and keep in mind that variety within the diverse genome of humans that occurs with the variety of conditions that that are on Earth, and and those are various subspecies, if you will. I know we begin to get into into things that concern people when we start talking about this. But if you, if you treat fundamentally humans fundamentally as another form of biology on Earth, then they, they basically act the same way. And, and we, we, we effectively have different variations of human, of the human species all over the Earth as a result of the variation of environment. But, it, but it's still 1G. But it's still 1G. And keep in mind, you say, well, there's people that live in the cold northern polar regions, and there's people that live on the equator, and there's people that live in deserts, and people that live in tropical forests, and, you know, we have all this variety, so Mars is just another form of variety. Well, the, the bands within, within which humans are living on the Earth really are not that wide. We're, we're talking about the difference between living in 100 degrees and living in minus 60 Right, uh-huh. 160 degree difference. So there's a lot more extreme differences elsewhere in space. Um, mm-hmm. Differences in atmospheric pressure. You have people living high in the Himalayas. Um, you have these these Sherpas that are able to like haul bags up to the top of Everest without oxygen support, and it's like a stroll in the park. <laughs> and and in the meantime, us Americans are struggling our way to the top of Everest with oxygen supply, and we're lucky if we make it without without permanent <laughs> effects to our health. So, I mean, there, but, but it still isn't a large variation, right, in, in, in atmospheric pressure that we're talking about. All still fundamentally in 1G. Yep, definitely. So, so you go out into Mars, you have more extreme differences in pressure than that if you're talking about living in a straight Martian environment and, and, and levels of solar, uh, of the actual harmful radiation are different. Um, solar levels are different. Half, half the level of, of useful solar power, human useful solar power on Earth or on Mars and on Earth. Those variations are a lot larger than you have here on Earth. And so, and also, Again, remember, the ecological thermodynamics theory underpinning all this, Earth is effectively effectively a big battery that's been charging for 4 billion years. And you have disruptions happen. I mean, heck, even the, the seasonal dark period in the North Pole and the South Pole where there's no sun, you know, half the year. 
while there's no sun, that battery in that area is discharging and supporting what life is present in that environment. And so the life has adapted itself to these charges and discharges as the sun comes and goes and as high-quality energy comes and goes. You don't have a battery on Mars equivalent to the battery on Earth. I'm not saying you don't have any battery. There is certainly a battery. Mars certainly has its own battery. You certainly have dissipative structures functioning on Mars. You see these these little dust devils spinning across, and 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 you have the daily cycle of of sunlight and no sunlight, and 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 you can see seasons happening on Mars. I mean, there's definitely dissipative structures there. We haven't found biological dissipative structures there yet, if any. Um, but there is exergy that gets stored on Mars, but the theory suggests it isn't anything close to what Earth has, just from what we can visibly see in comparison to Earth, and the fact that it gets half the high-quality solar power that Earth gets. So it's, you know, again, our ecosystem, our living things on Earth are adapted to the Earth battery, and they're evolved to the Earth battery and not to the Martian battery, so they would have to evolve to that, which is highly risky to do in, a, in one or two generations. Uh, we're way beyond the 90 minutes we talked about. Um, do you have any concluding comments, either one of you, or should we have brought up or talked about something else that, that we've omitted that you would like to mention right now? I don't think we addressed the ethics question heavily there that I think was asked. We're, we're not personally ethicists. Um, we do attempt to discuss a little bit of the philosophy um, in in the paper. But effectively what our paper and what this theory is doing is we're saying there's a limit to what humans can do and still and what human society can do and continue to look like humans in human society as it is on Earth. And and that limit is defined by these criteria that we set up in our paper and it effectively defines the limit of human life in, in the human world. Uh, so the ethicists can take that, and and I'm sure they'll come up with a very, and they have, we know it, <laughs> they have come up with a very complex set of ethics rules. You know, we, we, have, we have the whole planetary protection system, so it's not as if people haven't been thinking about that. So I would encourage people, go look at what they're talking about there, and then read our theory and... You know, everybody's smart. You can make your connections. Um, try, try to make the connections that you can and, and see what you think you see. Um, you got an 11th hour note from Tim in Huntsville, and um, I'm not sure I understand it, but you guys are brighter than me, so let me, let me throw it out there. Uh, Tim says we are talking about putting restrictions on women to carry fetuses to term in gravity less than 1G, but similar issues have come up with women drinking alcohol and smoking while pregnant, and their individual rights took precedence to the increase in the odds of complications. Would this be an issue for space colonization as well? So I'm I'm not sure what he means. Would the restrictions be an issue, or would drinking and smoking 
be an issue. I don't know, but any, either of you want to comment on it? I'm taking a moment to process it, so Lee, if you have an immediate response. Well, I know that Morgan has a lot to say regarding women's rights, because she is one. <laughs> and far be it for me to step in and and speak for women. Yeah, and to point out that some women, non-binary people, uh, trans women, are asexual and don't want to be required to give birth in space if they want to go to space. Um, so I think that's important, an important thing to talk about as well as that we don't obligate people where they have to have certain roles, gender roles, sexual roles, to be able to go into space. And I think that's very important to bring up into the topics of the moral and ethics um, of approaching space exploration. Um, and uh, I don't think there's a whole lot of information on smoking and drinking in space, but I, I guess maybe somehow some of it goes on. I don't I don't know, but uh, I, I would think if you are going to have children, it's probably wise not to do things that harm your health. So whether that would be the same things on Mars or in, in a in free space as on Earth. I have no idea. I I, maybe it's mm-hmm. a Woody Allen movie, and you know, you'll go to space and you can eat all the banana splits you want and smoke all the cigars you want, and that's the medical treatment that's required to be healthy. So I guess, yeah, you know, I guess. So, mm-hmm. No, go ahead. Yeah, I guess one of, if I'm understanding it correctly. Here on Earth, the, there is the recommendation. People who are pregnant or who may be pregnant should stay away from alcohol, should stay away from cigarettes for the health of the child. And there are potential rules and laws of, like, child endangerment, neglect that could potentially go with that. But on, on the, like, on an alcoholic beverage, it's like a recommendation. Well, if you have someone go into space um, who will get pregnant, who has chosen to get pregnant, will they have very restricted limits on what they can do because of that? Maybe that's where they're going. Will, will people who can get pregnant, give birth, be able to have, have on Earth with recommendations, things like that, in space. Well, I think that would all have to evolve with our ability to give birth in space because um, we don't know what any anything might be that would be good or bad for for the for the fetus or for or for a, mm-hmm. a, a young kid. I don't I don't know, but uh, I would think if you've chosen to give birth and you want to have children and you want to do it in space, you would probably be willing to do things for the betterment of of the pregnancy and, and the kid. Um, you know, it, it doesn't seem like you'd want to go through all of that and then do things that deliberately are not in the in the developing fetuses or kids' best interests. But I don't know, maybe people, maybe common sense won't be a requirement to go to space either. I don't know. 
Mm-hmm. And there may be very specific cases, for example, medication. If a complication happens in space where you have to take a medication that endangers uh, the the fetus or endangers the pregnancy, what are the rules on that? So, um, so that has to evolve with uh, yeah. with the, the humans. Um, yep. There's another phone call. Do do the two of you have time to take it? Sure. Uh, hi, caller. Uh, welcome to the show. Who are you? Where are you, please? And thank you for calling. Uh, this is Tim from Huntsville. Oh, well, we just discussed your question, Tim. Did you hear it? I heard. Yeah, I heard it. Um, I just wanted to clarify some things. Uh, basically, I brought it up because I recall, like, a, I know it sounds silly to bring this up, but I, re- I actually watched, like, an episode of Law & Order, and they brought up that the that, that the woman in question had a child... The woman was supposed to have been an a, uh, alcoholic and that she had already had one child that had fetal al- alcohol syndrome. And they were bringing up whether or not to allow her to carry the child to term. Something to that effect. Well, I don't know how any of that would apply to space right now. We don't well, even it's know. It's kind of it like it's, it's the whole idea about uh, women's rights. And you know, would you, I mean, if, if a woman got pregnant in space, would they force her to get an abortion or something like that? Who is they? Uh, whoever makes the laws. I mean, <laughs> it, I mean, if I recall correctly, um, the, whatever, whatever, whatever company, I mean, the country launches a spacecraft, their jurisdiction is on that spacecraft. Yeah, but I don't know that that would go to the humans, and I don't know. I well, and 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 I would say here, here's the ch- I think here's the challenge that we can extend. Uh, we're we're not lawyers. We're not uh, um, law experts, but I can say that our legal system is what we call an augmentational system. It's a system that that is artificial, not naturally occurring. Humans set it up in order to help human society function and thrive, right? Right. Our, Our legal system is heavily based upon the way Earth functions, fundamentally. You know the way the way humans procreate, the the gestation period, the lifespans, um, all it's 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 very heavily based upon the way stuff functions on Earth. You go into space and you don't set up the same conditions on Earth such that things don't function the same way. And this is getting into the whole question of how women gestate, right, and give birth. If things do not function the same way then you cannot duplicate the same augmentational system. You cannot use that augmentational system from Earth on Mars because the context is completely changed. Fundamentally, all augmentational, all augmentational systems that humans develop will be tuned in their efficiency to the way their ecosystem functions and, and the way humans function within their ecosystem. And... And so when you're talking about having to change the way you do things legally, the way your laws are established, and Morgan got into forcing women to have babies or not, right, you could easily get into a situation where humans are dying off. We're trying to support our our settlement, our location, our development, so we are going to force the women that are left to start having babies, Right. Right. That's a sustainability question. And now suddenly you've changed the laws, women lose their rights. 
It's a completely different system than you have on Earth. And so all bets are off regarding whether that legal system is sustainable or whether it will cause the settlement to fail because people will leave because they don't want to deal with the, with the bad laws or whether the laws think they're doing the right thing but ultimately end up being more disruptive than productive and cause the system to fail, right? We just we don't have the experience with those new laws because we've never tested it on Earth. So by definition, you have to look at that and say, in question, the sustainability of something that doesn't look at like Earth because we have never proven it can work in a way that sustains humans. I just wanted to add one last comment on the pregnancy question. Ultimately, um, I believe that especially when it comes to a person's right to have a pregnancy or to have an abortion, depending on their different situations, that it's between the person who can get pregnant and their doctor. And maybe in the case of space, you have a scientist involved as well, um, a medical scientist, an ecological scientist, whoever could provide insight to help the person who is pregnant make a decision. I think it should be between them. Um, and ultimately, I think that's the same for Earth as well. Okay. Um, we really would have to evolve a lot to uh, to get to a system like that. So um, it would be interesting to see the, the pathway that took us to that system. Um, yep. I, th- I think that would be a fascinating pathway. I don't think it would start out that way, but uh, I, maybe it will. I appreciate your saying that, and as I said, I'll put it into the program. And uh, thank you for doing that. Tim, does that do it for you? Uh, it, well, kind, it kind of does it, yeah. Okay. Thank um, you. I, we're pretty late, so I, I want to... Okay, I'll let you go. Thank you for calling in. Um, no problem. Lee and Morgan, thank you very much for um, for being with us and for staying extra time. I really appreciate it, and I, I hope we can follow this with the two of you down the road, because I'm sure you'll be doing a lot more work on it, and, and it'll get a lot more coverage as, as the ideas uh, perk around with other people, and I, I'll look forward to that. Are either of you planning to present any of this at the ISDC this year in Dallas? Um, I've, I've, I've chatted with some folks at, at the ISDC. There, there's a little bit of a schedule challenge and um, so we'll have to see. So we don't have any any firm plans yet. Um, well, I was just going to say I'm planning to be there. So uh, if you're there, I'd look forward to meeting uh, the two of you in person, or at least the one of you that is there in person. So, um, but I appreciate your being with us and spending the extra time. And and uh, I hope we can talk again down the road because I I think this is a real important topic, and I appreciate you bringing it to our attention. Thank you, David, for having us. Um, My pleasure, and thank you as well, Morgan. Uh, Everybody, uh, that's it for today, so thank you for participating. And uh, thanks to Lee and Morgan. Um, Have a great weekend coming up. Remember Dr. Zubrin on Tuesday. And uh, goodbye from Lee, Morgan, David, and the Space Show.